Time again for another episode of Matinees on Main Street, the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. My name is Alan, and in the past two episodes, I talked about the movies of the Spanish-American War. Now we can look at something more trivial. It's a look at the train film genre of this period. It's probably the most unique idea for a film genre at the time, and its success was quite unexpected and remarkable. While the first Edison films, the ones that highlighted vaudeville stars, made some sense as a film subject, the company had already been doing that kind of thing with phonograph records, so it had a track record with vaudeville performers. And the Lumiere's first films can easily be thought of as human interest films, and that kind of film always draws an audience. News event films also make sense as they keep news-hungry people informed, even if some of the films were faked. But what was it about those train films? Why was everyone so excited over them? So today we'll look at the subject and see if we can understand the attraction. If you've been following this podcast, then you know that the first train film was made by the Lumieres. My guess is that no one in the company at that time understood the impact that that film would make. As we know, the purpose of making all those film shorts by all those manufacturers of movie projectors was so that they could sell their projectors. After all, no one except the Lumieres was even marketing a camera, so who was going to provide the public with films for their projectors? The problem had also happened with the phonograph, and even then, the phonograph inventors quickly handed over the job of making recordings to another company. It's possible that the Edison Company now understood the money they lost in not making recordings, but even so, they only made a half-hearted attempt to provide films for their projection customers. As for the Lumieres, becoming a provider of entertainment product was all very new. In the past, they had been producing photographic equipment, but once that was accomplished, they, like every other projector inventor, created a small number of films to use with their projectors for demonstration purposes, and then they turned their machine loose on the public. The standing ovation they received at the photographic conference held in Paris in early 1895 should have tipped them off that they had something that was more special than they realized. By the time they held their first public exhibitions late in December of the same year, they had several other films that they had ready to be shown, and the results, while still small, were remarkable. The small number of films shown at the Salon had been made through 1895. A few experimental ones had been made a year earlier, and with a large number of them having been filmed in the summer of 95. Generally, those films fell into two categories. There were a few humorous ones, which show that the Lumieres seemed to have had a better sense of humor than the Edisons, and the other films were kind of family films. 
Long before the movie camera projector came out, the Lumiere family had become wealthy due to the brothers' modernization of their father's photographic factory. In fact, the family became wealthy enough to buy property, so their father, Antoine, bought an estate in the south of France, near the Mediterranean Sea. It was there that he was filmed playing cards with his friends, including magician Felicien Trevet. The train out of Lyon was the family's normal route to the southern estate, and when it arrived at the station in the neighboring town of La Ciotat, the family's arrival was filmed by Louis. The images of Auguste's wife and older daughter, along with a number of other passengers, are now preserved on film as they arrive at the station. These films are like vacation movies, and Louis seemed to film Auguste's family. These are among the most well-known of the Lumiere films, and they include films such as Repat de Bebe, which shows Auguste, his wife, and younger daughter eating lunch. The big question is, why did he make a moving picture of an approaching train? I'm asking this because this is where most of the excitement proved to be for the spectators, and it would launch a craze for train films that would last up to the release of The Great Train Robbery in 1903. To be honest, no one knows, and we can only speculate. From Louis' cinematic perspective, he probably thought it made a good image. As a guess, I'd say the film was meant to be more of a crowd shot than of a train film. For all of those people gathering at the platform or debarking from the train, this would have been the very first time they ever saw a moving picture camera. Most undoubtedly, they probably never even knew this kind of camera existed and probably thought it was simply a still camera. They probably also wondered why he wanted to take a picture of the train and of the crowd of people. There are at least two different versions of this film. That's something that many of the early film men had to do with their popular films. What was probably the first of the two films was the also the more grainier of the two. This one is shorter. The train's arrival is cut short and the crowd seems to be primarily men. To be honest, the film is blurry and it's hard to distinguish the various people. It seems that a woman carrying a girl walks off the train, but it's not certain. It may have been Madame Lumiere and their daughter, but considering the quality of the image and the brief time that they're in the picture, who knows? It's also possible that Louis and Auguste had no way of knowing where the train would actually stop and they may have not known which car Auguste's wife and daughter were in. More than likely, if this had been an attempt to photograph his wife and child, the two brothers didn't succeed that well, and instead were left with a film of a slowly arriving train. Actually, it's hard to see what people got excited about in this film. Maybe it was simply the act of movement, as some film historians have speculated. The second film is much clearer, and this time you can see it details among the crowds of people. Lots of nicely dressed women, many more than in the previous film, and you can catch the image of a young girl running out from the right in order to greet someone coming out of the train, maybe Grandma. Her mother follows behind her walking. 
I really don't know what's the length of time between the two films. Months? Years? So it's very possible that it was the blurrier, less exciting film that may have launched the craze for train films, and the second was simply a redo. Now, I've talked a bit about the legend of this film earlier. Very early on, a rumor started that people panicked when they saw this film. Considering how slow the train is moving, it's rather hard to believe. I think I've mentioned in some past podcasts that there have been other machines besides the projector that had attempted to show moving images. Those machines would have been similar to my Bridges Zoopraxiscope. In most cases, they were simply dual magic lanterns with some kind of complicated setup to show alternating slides. Some of these setups were interlinked, but others were simply two individual magic lanterns handled by experienced magic lantern operators. If you were really experienced, you could get maybe five images a second changing before your eyes. Not quite fast enough to look like true motion, but it did give you a bit of an idea of what motion would look like. I mention this because it means that there were people who had some experience at looking at images move, even before the appearance of the projector. Maybe that movement didn't include trains, but at least they were aware of the concept, and maybe the audiences cheered simply because the Lumieres had finally captured motion completely. The Lumiere films had to have inspired some thoughts concerning this new process. I really doubt that anyone consciously thought about some of these ideas, but some people may have considered the existence of these films as a challenge to be met. The first idea is obvious, and that was the ability of the projector to show many more images in a second than could be achieved by a magic lantern. It really did look as if pictures were moving, but that brings up a thought I didn't see mentioned in early film histories. And that is the difference in the mind of the public between seeing reality in the form of a film and seeing a moving photograph. The fact was that photographs had been around for a half a century by this time. While everyone knew that photographs were a representation of reality, they also knew that they were not reality, that they were a physical object, an image on paper that was in gray tones and the image on it represented something or someone at one point of time. We grow old, but that person in the picture stays the same age. Did the people who watched these early movies think of those films as black and white reality as they did photographs? Or did they think that they were looking at life on a screen, kind of like a ghost or a spirit? Did they experience them in the same way that their grandparents experienced early photographs, as something maybe a little magical? Or did they just think of them as simply another attempt to capture reality, only this time with movement? Considering that some of these people had experienced the Magic Lantern's attempts to reproduce movement, did they think of these movies as simply an improvement on those Magic Lantern shows? By about 1910 or so, different kinds of writers whose interest was in the early movies 
would refer to them with phrases such as moving shadows, and that could imply that they thought the first audiences of the movies saw them as really capturing existence in some way. But in the movie's first years, they were usually referred to as moving pictures, and it seems as if the public may not have related to the movies so much as capturing reality, but as photographs that now moved. In other words, it was not so much the movie's representation of reality that fascinated them. After all, photographs could do that. Instead, it was the movement within them, not the reality, that fascinated them. Kind of like the zoetropes or the phanakistoscopes that the children used to play with. Photographs didn't move. The movies did. Another concept that first appears in the Lumiere films is the representation of forward motion, which would mean movement towards the viewer. While the great train robbery would later make this image indelible in people's minds, the first Edison film showed little of that. The Edison people filmed their shorts as if everything and everyone was on a stage. The fourth wall was definitely in place between the performers and their audiences. The Lumieres did things differently, and that may have been simply because their experience was with cameras rather than with vaudeville. Their very first film almost broke the fourth wall, although it's doubtful they even understood this concept. La Sortie de Lucine Lumière à Lyon, or Workers Leaving the Lumière Factory in Lyon, shows people coming straight out of the factory door and heading towards the camera before either moving to the left or the right. In all three versions of the film, the movement is forward and then to the left or right. Only the wandering dog breaks up that rhythm. But in L'Arrivée d'un train à la Ciétat, or the train arriving at the station at La Ciétat, while the camera is not set directly in front of the train, it is close enough that it shows the train's movement is slightly forward, and it never deviates. It's not moving really fast, but it never turns left or right. This may have given some people a bit of a thrill, but if it did, it was never registered in any of the newspapers, magazine articles, journals, diaries, or letters that have been scoured from that time to this by film historians, looking to either validate or discredit the fabled rumor of fear. Still, the movie made an impression, and it showed others what could be done with film. As an option to the more masculine-flavored Edison films, the train arriving at the station at La Ciotat proved to be a popular alternative, and its popularity spread. Still, it's doubtful the very many people in the States knew of the Lumiere's films until their cameramen arrived in America in the summer of 1896. Even before then, the Edison Company had been making movie shorts with trains as their subject, so none of them could be considered influenced by the train arriving at Ciotat. By this time, William Laurie Dixon was gone from the Edison Company, and his replacement, James White, while continuing to make the occasional vaudeville performer film, was more interested in making films that showed life in the big cities, 
as well as the objects that made them unique and special. For example, he shot Elevated Train at 23rd Street in New York in the spring of 1896, but the film was more about seeing public transportation in New York City than it was about the train itself. To some of us, the other train film, Railway Smash-Up, sounds destructively promising. But this is more about the late 19th century's equivalent of a demolition derby. At that time, there were plenty of old locomotives retired to the railway company's locomotive junkyards. But instead of rusting in peace, these old automotive machines were brought out like ancient gladiators to entertain people at the county fairs and other outdoor events and were doomed to smash into each other in one last glorious explosion. It was not uncommon to find some kind of ticketed event similar to truck pulls, demolition derbies, and monster truck rallies, where two old steam engines faced each other for the first and last time and were run into each other. This is what White filmed, also in the spring of 1896. This film was shot from a distance. One train came from the left and the other came from the right. It looks fun and destructive, but it never breaks the fourth wall. The movie was recorded not because it was unique, but because it was so popular at the time. That spring, White also took a trip to the Niagara Falls area, and one of the films he made was of the railroad that traveled the Niagara Gorge. The fascination with railroads had as much to do with their presence and importance in our lives as it did with their power, noise, and smoke. In a lot of ways, they were like the computer in our age. There was a time when they didn't exist, but from the 1840s on, trains dominated the lives of those generations. The railroads appeared in different places in different times. They first appeared in England in the early 1820s and quickly appeared in France and then America. British investment in railroads spread them worldwide, later followed by American investors. Because America was still expanding at the time, the railroad's domination of American culture happened much later than in England. Almost everywhere that railroads appeared, the public's views were very contradictory. In the beginning, people were amazed at the power of the machines, but also at the ability to travel from one point to another so fast. At the same time, they despised the smoke and soot that poured out of their smokestacks. Over time, the exhaust process was somewhat rectified, and the public grew to depend upon them. Unfortunately, in some places, such as in America, the railroads had expanded to such a degree that some people were rather disgusted by the entire system. There had always been some people who had mourned the disrupted landscape due to the trains as well as their smoke and noise. That followed by those who grew angry over their continued rise in transportation fees. Finally, there were those who disliked the economic domination of the industry over America, as well as the corruption and abuse of power the industry used to have its way. Yeah, it does sound a bit like the computer and internet industries. In other words, the railroads were not just about traveling. 
They were about economic power as well as locomotive power. They were amazing and they were a little scary. They were very powerful and they were noisy. They altered the landscape and changed the rhythm of life. They were efficient in a transcontinental way, but they were large, cumbersome, and deadly in a personal kind of way. They were massive machines that pulled long lines of freight cars or passenger cars, and even if the engineer wanted to stop, it was a very difficult and slow process that took longer than anyone would have expected. But we had grown used to them. So had France and the Lumières. As for the Lumières, they didn't see the American film industry as a challenge. They were simply in the business to make a lot of money from photographic equipment. Surprisingly, it wasn't the Edison Group, but the people at Mutoscope that took up the Lumières' challenge of making train films. Maybe that's because Dixon was more sensitive to European issues due to his childhood. Who knows? But it was the mutoscope that would change the way the train films were seen. At the time, mutoscope had just launched its biograph projector. It had a bigger image than the 35mm projectors, and it was considered much more impressive. It was during that fall that Dixon shot the film of the Empire State Express. In this film, Rail workers are seen working on a track, and in the distance, the Empire State approaches. They move out of the way as the train heads towards them, and as it rushes by, the men wave to the people on the train who are waving back at them. The Empire State Express was the flagship passenger train for the New York Central. It ran from New York City north to Albany and west to Buffalo. From there, it merged with the lines that wrapped around the Great Lakes to Chicago. And that was the Express's specialty. A glamorous and scenic trip from New York City to Chicago, via the Adirondacks, the Hudson River, and the Great Lakes. Before the Empire Express appeared in the vaudeville houses and in the local moving picture exhibitions, the expectations of the audiences concerning train films were that they'd see a slow-moving train like the one the Lumières filmed. Those expectations changed fast. While it might not seem very adventurous these days, the audience is thrilled to see the Empire Express chugging down the line and hitting that curve at 50 miles an hour. The Express trains, as well as the Limiteds, were designed to get from point A to point B fast. There were not a lot of stops, and the trains traveled faster than the general freight and commuter trains. Track workers knew, or they should have known, which lines were being worked on and which lines were active. When the Empire Express headed towards the workers, they respected its speed and their own safety and stepped clearly out of the way, avoiding the suction of the train as it moved by. They also knew how much room to give the train. But to the audiences, this was something new a vicarious thrill that seemed to suggest that those workers might get hit or that the train just might hit the cameraman, or existentially, themselves. Even Dixon himself admitted that. One of the rail workers told him how far he needed to be from the train to avoid being hit, but once it approached, 
the workers stepped back even farther, leaving Dixon to estimate on his own how much clearance he really had. The excitement of this movie became news that spread fast, even as far away as England and Australia. Within two months, the Edison people were making their own version, a sure sign of a successful film. As Mutoscope now had ties to the New York Central, Edison, based in New Jersey, found it easy to connect with another main line of the railroad traffic heading to New York, the Lehigh Valley Company, and their brand new express, the Black Diamond. The Empire State Express was about five or six years old, but the Black Diamond had only come into existence in the spring of 1896. So once the opportunity arose, the Edison Company made a deal with Lehigh and traveled into Pennsylvania to film the construction of additional lines while the Black Diamond sped by its workers, with them waving to the train. Thanks to the strength of Edison's name and the legal leverage he held concerning moving picture projectors, the Black Diamond was at least as popular as Mutoscope's Empire State Limited film. That's because anyone interested in the Biograph film had to arrange with Mutoscope to have a Biograph projector appear at their establishment, while the Vitascope and its films were left in the hands of whomever bought it. This made the Biograph a much more inconvenient and cumbersome process than was the Vitascope. The genre was now popular enough that Edison would continue to make train films, with additional Black Diamond films appearing in the following year. Over the next year or two, both companies made train films that brought something to the cinematic process. At this time, William White ran the Edison Film Group, while much of the camera work was done by he and Charles Heiss. Fall of 1897, Heiss was left in charge to handle Edison's makeshift film studio while White took off with her less experienced cameraman, Fred Blackenden, and traveled west to shoot a series of shorts on the West Coast over the next several months. This offer had come through the Lehigh Valley Railroad and was probably due to the success of the Black Diamond Express film. My guess is that the Southern Pacific Railroad was also involved in this offer as part of the work that White and Blackenden were doing in California involved making a number of films for the Southern Pacific. But what proved to be the most significant Edison train film at this time was the Philadelphia Express Jersey Central film. It seems to be at this time that White and Hess had started to assemble and edit films at the most basic level. While there were certainly a few other films made by the Edison people at this time that did show some complexity in editing, the Philadelphia Express Jersey Central does betray a bit of editing at one spot. The first part of the film shows the express train rolling towards the camera, but to the right. Once the train passes us by, the bridge that crosses over the field of vision immediately shows the Jersey Central slowly traveling over it. This would have seemed like a perfectly timed film until you spy a train sitting still on the track that had just been used by the Philadelphia train. Obviously, the camera had been stopped and restarted some time later. 
any stop and start of the film was edited out, leaving a film that showed the trains moving, one right after another. But the film that really brought on a change in train films was Mutoscope Biograph's Haverstraw Tunnel. This time, the mutoscopers arranged with the West Shore Railroad to film along a trail going through the Haverstraw Tunnel. The West Shore Railroad was part of the New York Central Combine, and its terminal was in Weehawken, New Jersey, just across the Hudson from New York City. The line went north from the terminal and crossed the state line into the mountainous western side of the Hudson River in New York. The tunnel is just south of the town of Haverstraw, where the train line crosses a few state parks. What was so unique and yet a little puzzling at the time was that William Laurie Dixon seems to have strapped himself to the pilot or cowcatcher on the train while holding his camera and filming the ride. Why? Probably to get a better view of the tunnel. Just filming a tunnel would have accomplished nothing more than a snapshot could have captured. The only drama was going through it, and the only way through it was on a train. The only good view was strapped to the cowcatcher. Some historians have compared the Havistraw Tunnel to the Lumiere film Departing Jerusalem, which also shows a scenic view by rail while excluding the train. But in this instance, the cameraman, Alexandra Promio, is standing at the back of the train as it pulls out of the station. Promio is filming the view from the back of the train, so he didn't have to deal with the view from the front end. In the case of Mutoscope, it's not quite known who conceived this idea, especially who conceived the logistics of the situation, but whoever did deserves a little credit for one of the most truly innovative ideas in film. What Havistraw Tunnel shows is simply the landscape around a train track. As the film advances, the image heads towards a tunnel. Suddenly, all is black for a few moments. Then light appears in the distance and comes forward, and we suddenly see the railroad landscape again. Two things really caught the public's eye. The first was the moving landscape. The second was the disappearance into the tunnel before re-emerging. It was a little like those amusement rides that slip into tunnels, for example, such as the Tunnels of Love. The audiences loved it. For example, a Boston Globe article called it more wonderful than the Empire State Express film. More than that, the film earned a name. The Phantom Ride. This phrase had been out since the days of Charles Dickens. He used it on one of his later Christmas stories, but the description also fits the scenes in his Christmas Carol story, where the three ghosts take Ebenezer Scrooge on trips to see his past, present, and future. In 1919, the name would also inspire the classic early horror film, The Phantom Carriage, have a straw tunnel earned this name because you couldn't see the train, and it started a film trend in England. Actually, it's very possible that Mutoscope was responsible for the name, as well as the articles and the coming trend. It seems that they were proving to be more marketing conscious than any other movie machine-making company. 
while McGuire and Bacchus were handling Edison product in Europe in what we might refer to as the usual way, the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company were much more active in marketing their product. Consider this article in the Pall Mall Gazette. New Pictures at the Palace A remarkable film was added to the Biograph series of photographs at the Palace Theater last night. The pictures were photographed from the front of a locomotive of a West Shore Express traveling at the rate of 60 miles an hour. Objects flash past. The scene is ever-changing. The dark entrance to the Havistraw Tunnel looms in the distance and gradually widens until the train plunges into utter darkness. This goes on, but the article never mentions anything else at the palace. It even states... The new pictures are perhaps the most successful ever exhibited in this country. A pretty bold statement. More than likely, this PR was from Mutoscope offices in London rather than the palace people. Soon after, daily ads were being run for the palace that listed films showing the biograph and their films, including A Phantom Ride. And the Phantom Rides begin. Mutoscope Biograph wasn't finished. In their quest to make these scenic train films, their cameramen placed themselves on a number of various trains, including the scenic travel train that passed by the American side of Niagara Falls. Fred Armitage, one of Biograph's cameramen, arranged to have a platform car attached to the front of one of these trains due to the several hundred pounds of large equipment they carried with them. In the case of the Niagara Scenic train, the route was so curvy that it caused the train, as well as the platform car, to rock back and forth. Eventually, the curves proved so sharp, the platform tilted and even reared up a bit. Armitage said that once the car reared up, it tipped over, and he and his assistant, as well as the camera, spilled out onto the shoulder of land that was conveniently there. Any further, and they would have ended up in the river. Not long after the train rides appeared at the palace, Chards, a manufacturer and supplier of their own version of the cinematograph, was advertised as projecting a phantom ride at the Dury Lane Theatre in London. This one was a tunnel ride on the southeastern rail through the Chiseler's Tunnel, and shortly after, the Polytechnic, which may have been the place where Robert Paul got his start, was also advertising phantom rides. Through the spring of 1898, the Phantom Rides could be found at all three exhibition halls, the Vaudevillian Palace, the Drury Lane Theater, and the Polytechnic School. Also, photographic and cinematographic supply shops started carrying Phantom Ride films for those with the equipment to show them. Those would be the many people traveling throughout Britain exhibiting in their circuit affairs. That guaranteed viewing Phantom Ride films through the end of the year. That summer, they could be found at the Empire, where the Phantom Ride was a train ride from Grove Park to Chiswick, then an area east of London that was just starting to become suburbanized. The ride showed everything passing in a blur. By the fall, Phantom Rides started to appear in Sydney, Australia, where it was advertised that the spectator was the actual phantom. 
By this time, the Phantom Rides had appeared in countries across Europe, and the novelty of seeing the landscape pass by quickly was taking hold. In fact, that's what seems to have been the novelty of the Phantom Ride. It was not looking at the landscape with the vicarious thrill of riding on a train while watching it on a film. It seemed to be the sense of flying like a specter or a ghost across the landscape, this feeling of being unencumbered by feet, train, or the ground. Probably something like the magical trains or broom-flying effects in the Harry Potter films. Despite being in a lot of places in 1898, the Phantom Rides never took a hold in the United States in the way that they did elsewhere. Probably the primary reason was that we were involved in our own obsession called the Spanish-American War. A year later, when Britain became more deeply involved with the Boer War, Phantom Rides would soon disappear, leaving them as a novel memory until the Hales Tours would bring them back to life in 1905 and 6. Next time, We'll look deeper into the effects of a handful of Englishmen to start up a cinematic culture in England. So thanks for listening, and take care.